Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. And joining me this week is Emma. Emma, how are you doing? Good, thanks. And uh, we have our in-house economist, Chris Delo. Hello. And we have Rob Powell, who's an investment strategist for MyShares. How are you doing, Rob? Good, thanks, Taha. Great. So this week, got a few things to talk about. On Monday, it's the start of Good Money Week. Uh, Good Money Week was designed to promote sustainable and responsible investing, which is basically where you know, you're know you investing for capital returns, but you're also investing alongside some kind of ethical or moralistic guidelines. There's some evidence that shows that this doesn't have to be at the expense of capital returns. There's a, you know, there's a logic here that if you invest in a company that has good governance or a, a moralistic code or high moralistic code, then the less likely it is that they will have a massive blow-ups. And we're going to have to look at things like Volkswagen to to see some evidence of that. Rob, what's your what's your thoughts on the sustainable investing and good money week in general? Uh, well, sustainable investing is definitely something that we see increasing demand for from across Europe. It used to be more demand coming from countries other than the UK, I would say, in this space. But UK demand has definitely increased recently. I think that there's you know, there's a there's a few headwinds regarding um, money actually moving into those kind of investments. So despite the increasing demand and, and the pickup that we've seen, we've actually seen limited flows going into that area across our products. Why, why do you think that is? Because it's, it's something we, we talk about in the magazine quite often and that, you know, we, we look at what our readers say and what they think about this. So there definitely seems to be some growing traction. I suppose particularly among the, the younger investor, this is perhaps something um, older investors take that seriously or, or want to, but why, why do you think, what's limiting flows? Well, I think the point that you highlighted at the start, actually, is, the, is probably the most important one, which is that people assume that they have to sacrifice some level of return to gain exposure to these sustainable themes. Uh, that's something that uh, investors... Um, you know, BlackRock in particular is working very hard on a myth that we're working hard on dispelling. So a lot of the newer products in this space are designed so that you don't have to make the same kinds of sacrifices that maybe you would have had to in the past. I guess there's, you know, other um, there's other headwinds like a lack of regulation surrounding this. Some countries do have regulations on what you can and can't have in portfolios. So in the UK, that is that is a bit of a headwind. There's also the fact that Nobody really has a clear definition of what ESG or sustainable is. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think you know, like that is one of the one of the things that we're working hard as well to 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 get the views of investors from across Europe on what this means for them, and then trying to fulfil their requirements. I uh, know it's a definitely interesting thing. This uh, good money work is a is a growing concept as well. It seems to get more and more popular every uh, every year. I'm sure you'll see things around that next week and um, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show as well the other thing this week was of course the uh, u.s interest rate rise um it's always something that's important uh, it impacts markets in in very different ways whether you hold u.s government bonds or whether you hold emerging markets uh, there's always uh, something going on chris what are your what are your thoughts on uh, on what we saw from the the fomc this week the rate rise this week was absolutely no surprise they've signaled it weeks and weeks ago what I think is more significant is that they've given us projections for future rate rises. Um, they're telling us that on their current forecasts, we'll see another rate rise this year, most probably in December, then two or three more next year, and another one thereafter. So interest rates, which are the Fed funds rate, which is currently targeted to be between two and two and a quarter percent, will rise to 3.4 percent by 2020. 
that's uh, it's almost getting back to you know what we i suppose what we consider to be normal uh, normal interest rates if you think back to pre-financial crisis what's the impact on this and let's say emerging markets is something that's always touted as being uh, affected by rate rises what, what are we seeing here well it if you believe the efficient market theory that we're taught at university, then there should be no impact whatsoever because the Fed's signalling rate rises should be already fully discounted by shares and bonds. Um, that said, I, there are risks to emerging markets here in that history tells us that periods of rising US interest rates, especially if they're accompanied by a rise in the dollar, can be bad news for emerging markets. And the reason for this is that quite a few emerging market companies borrow in US dollars so that when US interest rates rise, they often face higher borrowing costs. And when the US dollar rises, they often find that they have to pay out more in interest costs and in interest repayments. And we've already seen Turkey get into trouble on this account. And it is possible that, that, that we'll, we'll see more. And for me, emerging markets are a dangerous place to be when U.S. interest rates are, are, are rising. Obviously, it's difficult to say, but do we do we think it's priced in? Like, I, mean, I know we've seen turmoil in emerging markets so far this year, but most of that's been driven, I suppose, by the trade war rather than it has by monetary policy. Oh, oh yes, yes. There's 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 other reasons than U.S. interest rates for emerging markets to fall. One thing that I I believe in here is the so-called ten-month average rule. Um, this was proposed by Meban Farber, a U.S. Um, fund manager, uh, years and years ago. He says, quite simply, that you should buy a market if its price is above the 10-month average and sell if its price is below its 10-month average. And now, this works very well for markets that are driven by momentum, um, such as emerging markets. Um, and with prices now being a little below the 10-month average, this is signalling caution. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean we should rush out to sell, but it is, it is flashing, flashing red rather than green. It, and it's, a, it's another warning sign. Okay. Um, in terms of, obviously, the, the search for yields has been something that's been quite important in recent years in the low interest rate environment. If that's starting to change in the U.S., do we think this might start to affect other kind of popular income-producing asset classes? You know, if you can get three and a half from treasuries and inflation-linked treasuries, you, know, you can get three and a half yield from them. Why, why wouldn't you take that at the expense of, you know, anything else that's even yielding around that but is significantly more risky? Yeah. Oh, well, well, this is a danger. And there is a view that um, one reason why the U.S. market has done so well in the last few years is that there's been a reach for yield. In the, because cash pay has paid virtually nothing, investors have looked to shares um, in, all, in order to get, get some kind of, kind of return. And that if returns on cash uh, become more attractive, that reach for yield might well be reversed. Now, the problem with this is that it, in the real world, it's impossible to tell how much reach for yield has been going on. The best evidence we've got from it is actually laboratory experiments. Um, where people are given a choice between um, a safe and a risky asset. And experimenters have found that if you reduce retur expected returns on both, then people will shift into the risky asset. So the best evidence, you know, is, is 
from 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 experiments rather than um, re- reality. And of course, we don't know what investors regard as an acceptable return on cash. It might be that cash returns will stay below um, what they regard uh, as desirable. Everybody's idea of what constitutes a normal interest rate is a, is a little different. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, definitely something to watch there. Um, in terms of the forecast you mentioned earlier, what does that tell us about the state of the US economy? Obviously, that's the big thing we've been talking about specifically uh, in terms of US equities, really low unemployment, rising interest rates, inflation ticking up. Uh, what, what, do the Fed, what do the Fed think on that, son, on that side? Well, what's, what's remarkable about the Fed's forecasts is just how stable it expects the economy to be. It's projecting inflation to be flat at around 2% through to 2021. And it's projecting unemployment to fall very slightly next year, but rise by 2021. Um, so, so its forecast is for considerable stability. You know, now, there are, there are risks to that. I mean, one is that with unemployment now very close to a 50-year low, might that not spark higher inflation? Economists have always thought that, you know, low unemployment, if sustained for a while, will lead to rising inflation. On the Fed's view, to the extent that that's the case, very moderate rises in interest rates will be sufficient to quell the very slight rise in inflation caused by tight labour markets. Now, what the Fed seems to be saying, therefore, is that the link between unemployment and inflation has changed in a way that is very, very favourable for investors, such that the economy can run at um, a fast pace with little capacity, um, with little spare capacity, uh, without generating higher inflation, which means that the, the, the economic expansion is sustainable. Now, now that, that's a very questionable view, and that's another risk for investors, that the Fed is underestimating inflation. No, of course, if, uh, if that's wrong, then we're going to see some serious corrections in the US, uh, US market. If it is the it. case that wage and price inflation looks like taking off, then the Fed's interest rate projections will prove to be too low. We'll definitely be looking out for that. The other big thing in the week was the Labour Party conference. Some interesting suggestions about uh, companies and shares and uh, 10% being handed over to employees. Uh, there's some more in the magazine this week about that. Nothing big in terms of what's impacted markets. Um, obviously, this if this policy comes through, then there might be a big impact. But um, it's always one to watch. We've had some things in the past where um, infrastructure funds have been affected by uh, Labour wanting to renationalise PFI contracts, etc., Emma, that was a, that was an interesting period last year, wasn't it? We saw a, a very popular investment trust sector on high premiums significantly impacted. Yeah, you're right. So basically, investment trusts like Hickel, two years ago, were trading on very high premiums to net asset value. Hickel was on the 30% premium, and John Lang Infrastructure Trust was on the 23% premium. But following the news that John McDonnell had said at the last Labour Party conference that he wanted to bring in PFI contracts, the sector had a massive derating and actually those two trusts I mentioned were at one point earlier this year trading on discounts of 10%. So, you know, from, from 30% to 10% discount is, is quite a big move. Um, in the last few months, we've had quite a lot of change in the sector. For example, John Lang Infrastructure Fund received a takeover bid in July this year 
and shareholders have now actually voted for that to go through. So the last day of trading was yesterday and shareholders will receive um, a settlement of 142.5p, which is the offer price and they're going to receive that. Um, next month. Okay, it's interesting because uh, there's going to be a lot of capital flowing into the infrastructure investment trust space. Obviously, people wanting to recycle their uh, their earnings on uh, on Jolie into other things. So that's an uh, interesting one to watch as well. Other things in the news this week. Um, oh, it's another week and another fun launch. Uh, this time it's from Jupiter. Emma, you've got some details on this one. Yeah, that's right. So Jupiter has announced that they're going to be launching a new macro income fund. And that's going to be run by Taylor Shake, who joined the company recently after about 20 years with JP Morgan. So this fund is going to be targeting quite a punchy yield of 46%. And it's going to be a multi-asset fund investing in a range of assets, equities, bonds, derivatives, and um, even areas like mortgage-backed securities as well. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so Taleb Shake was very popular when he was at JP Morgan. It's interesting to see whether he can carry on his form. The fund isn't, it's not like his most popular one, which is macro, which was micro opportunities at JP Morgan. That was kind of more absolute return. So this is, this is growth investing with income. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. As I said, it's, it's looking to generate a yield of, of 46% and it's aiming to also grow capital over a, four, a three to five year period as well. Okay. Um, in terms of, um, so you've looked at the fund in detail. What, what do we think about this? Is there, is there space for this one? Is there, you know, is there room for investors to be thinking about this? Yeah. I mean, as you said, the Taylor Shake had a good track record at JP Morgan. And um, it's interesting that he's obviously taken, he's continuing with his macro perspective. There's not necessarily that many funds that really just focus on the macro um, as asset allocation. So yes, it's an, it's an interesting fund. And analysts that we spoke to thought that it could be a good diversifier for people looking for income. Um, but some were concerned that actually the level of resource and research um, that the fund manager will have at Jupiter will be less than it was at JP Morgan. So they were a bit concerned that that might make the strategy less effective. So really, it's just it's one to see what happens. Okay, yeah, as, as you said about the uh, the macro, obviously, uh, Tony Shake takes macro positions, but then has always relied on other people to pick the actual stocks and bonds, which kind of fit his macro view. So has that at Jupiter, but maybe not as much as he had at Jupiter. Yeah, so it, it could be quite, it could be quite interesting to see how that works out. As we mentioned earlier, the other thing we've been looking at this week is uh, Good Money Week. The fund you've profiled this week, Emma, is uh, kind of fits into that theme. Uh, can we, when we talk about that, what have we got? Yeah, sure. Um, so we actually looked at Lion Trust UK Ethical Fund, which is interesting. We were talking about how sustainable um, investing, sometimes investors think that they're not actually going to get good returns. Well, this is an example of a fund that even though it's got an ethical mandate, it has performed very strongly and actually been one of the top performers in its sector you know, against other funds that don't have that ethical criteria. So over 10 years, it's produced 149%, um, which is more than its benchmark, the MSI UK index, which made around 100%, and also more than its sector average, which made about 128%. Okay, so no, some evidence there, as we were talking about earlier, Rob, you know, that you don't have to uh, sacrifice returns to take an ethical constraint. Um, so I think, as, as we mentioned earlier, the, the definition of, um, of ethical and sustainable and ESG and responsible and all these things is, de- depends on who you are. What do, what do these guys believe ethical means? Yeah, um, it's interesting because they take quite a positive perspective on ethical. So they will be looking for companies that they think um, have good environmental, social, government factors and which they think um, 
those factors can actually help to contribute to the company's success. In addition to that, they're also looking for companies that are doing things to improve people's quality of life, for example, through investing in medical or technological or educational areas. Um, and they'll also look at companies that are trying to improve the efficient use of of scarce resources. So they've got a, um, rather than sort of negative screening out um, areas, they tend to focus on companies that are doing well. No, that's a, that's a good point. Um, Rob, that's something that's probably, I don't know if you've noticed this change over time, but in the time I've been covering investments is that the shift from, as Emma said, negative screening to positive reinforcement. Is that something that you, you've seen in terms of from the product side? That what investors are demanding, not just like, I, I don't want a tracker fund that has X tobacco, I want a tracker fund that kind of actively tilts towards companies that are doing good things. Yes, uh, so like we were saying before, the the lack of the definition is one of the challenges, I think, here. Um, you know, we, we work very hard to try and, um, you know, survey investors, a broad array of investors to find uh, a methodology for accessing this kind of theme that, that really... That really works for many, many different people. Um, lots of people have different views, and they will go for certain approaches. But I think we're trying to we're trying to get uh, access to this in a way that that suits as many people as possible. Because I think we're getting to a point now where, in you know, in the past, people had uh, it was why should I have this in my portfolio, and now we're getting to the point where people are saying why not? Why is it not in my portfolio? So by satisfying the needs of as many people as possible we're trying to we're trying to um we're trying to uh, directly um directly provide solutions for the for people with those kind of views thank you for that emma and rob another big topic coming up recently and we, we talked about this in the magazine a few weeks ago um is thematic investing um rob this is something that you work on at uh, iShares. can you talk to us about this yeah sure so i mean i think this is really interesting for us um, and all investors, um, we're getting increasingly um, positive feedback from investors uh, on thematic investing as well. So uh, this is one of the fastest growing areas within the ETF space, so indexed funds, um, but also in the actively managed fund space. Um, we've seen a huge growth here. So I guess, what is this all about? What is thematic investing? Most people have a fairly clear view on what it is, but it's a, it's about accessing the effects of structural trends or megatrends. So longer term investing, really. So looking beyond what the Fed is saying or what's happening to interest rates in the short term and saying what's going to be driving change in the world for the next 30 years or so. Um, and really providing um, providing funds and exposures that people can understand and that, and that resonates with them. You know, a, a good example of this is I'm sure many of your readers will have seen the, um, the BA scandal that happened a couple of weekends ago and think, okay, that's, that's interesting. I may have been affected. I certainly got the email. I was affected by that. This is the, uh, the data. Yeah, there was a data breach on, on British Airways. Um, and many people will think, you know, how is that going to affect my investments? Um, and the idea with thematic investing is is looking at long-term trends such as cybersecurity or digital security, um, so companies that are aligned to protecting against those kind of hacks uh, and, and being able to invest in a whole basket of those kind of stocks. I think in the past, your only option when you see something like that is to Google cybersecurity firm and maybe buy the shares of that because you think if this is going to increase going forwards, then 
um, it could potentially benefit. But now we've got new kinds of indices, new kinds of funds, which give people the ability to invest in a whole broad array of stocks related to the trend. Okay, so cybersecurity is is one of those things, and uh, you know that kind of falls under the whole idea of technology being uh, quite a big thematic. But obviously, I think it's, it's slightly more granular than that. Um, what are the other kind of trends that you that you guys are seeing and looking at and going? this might need a, a product or have just recently launched a product to, to match that. Yeah, so I mean, we've done a lot of work on formalising our view on what we think the most important long-term drivers of change in the world are. I mean, so one key example is technological change, which which you just mentioned, which is really at the heart of um, the mega trends that we see. Um, you know, we also have views on urbanisation, for example, um, and which is all about the mass migration of people living in the countryside to living in the cities. Um, you know, there's some crazy stats in this space, like there's already a hundred cities in China with populations of over one million people. Um, and you know, putting that into context, there's ten in the US cities with populations of over a million. But um, you know, the World Economic Forum. Uh, and the UN are doing lots of research on on the extent of these kind of changes, and they, they believe that um, you know in the next ten years or so there are going to be two hundred cities in China with populations of over one million people. So you can see the extent of the shift. So um, our other trends are things like climate change, which we see um, obviously there's a lot in the press about the ne- negative aspects of that. But if you can, as an investor, focus on some of the companies. Um, that or investments that can potentially benefit from this. So the the clean energy firms, for example, that are in place to um, that are trying to challenge the the status quo and provide new technologies that are going to help with this kind of thing. Then you can have potentially very positive uh, impacts on your portfolio. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So um, f- from my point of view, like the, the themes you mentioned, that they all I suppose that they're all quite logical. Uh, they might be difficult to spot. I'm sure they are. But how do you then translate that into Picking companies, like take urbanization, for example, how do you then go, okay, there's going to be 200 cities with over a million people. How do you then decide which companies will benefit from that? Yeah, so another one of our long-term trends is demographics. You know, this is a very broad trend, like you said. Like, how do we actually um, be a bit more specific about providing exposures to companies that can benefit? So, you know, we're very unlikely to have a an investment product based on something as broad as demographics and social change, because you could be picking up, you know, anything from global population is aging. You know, there are currently there are currently a huge number of people over the age of eighty in China, for example. Already, there's already about thirty million people in China over the age of eighty. So, fifty percent of the population of the UK. We expect that to increase to one hundred and twenty million people by, um, you know, in the next by twenty fifty. So, that's the population of Japan or Mexico currently, yeah. um, just in people over the age of eighty. So, but you could also have in there, you know, the rise of the millennials as a consumer class, or the rise of the Chinese middle classes. So, by being a bit more specific and saying, let's provide funds or exposures to stocks that are aligned to aging population or sub themes within those high level mega trends, I think we can have more predictable portfolio outcomes, and that's that's the idea. So, I suppose with the aging population, you're you're targeting kind of care firms, healthcare. Firms firms or bi- biotech and things like that would, that would that fall under that category yeah i think you might be surprised at how broad the exposure actually can be when it comes to these kind of themes and how how you construct the index is is based on 
your view or a view on how this theme could play out. So um, something like aging population is a great example because people think exactly like you just said, you know, people think that aging population is just about healthcare firms and aging care. So aging care being firms that provide, you know, healthcare um, or, or look after people into old age, yeah. basically. But, you know, there's also the pension fund companies. So you have a large financials element in their pension funds and um, life insurance companies clearly well aligned to a, an aging population because more people are going to have requirements to save for their retirements and then draw that down when they're retired. But then also the aging consumer, you know, people don't people don't think about um, how long people are going to have in retirement these days and how they're going to be living longer and fuller lives because they're going to be healthier for longer. So if you look at the US economy, for example, and you look at the economy um, in the US of people of a certain age, so over about 55 or 60, um, their share of global GDP or um, global consumption uh, is in its own right the third largest economy in the world. So after the US and China. So it's a huge trend already. And they're going to be living longer lives, all of those kind of people. So we see we see uh, there's potential areas within the consumer space that can benefit things like travel. So you can have like cruise ship operators. There's some very high profile names. Yeah. Other types of travel companies like online travel, like uh, like TripAdvisor is a good example of something that is well aligned to people traveling more into old age so that consumption angle is something that people don't think of that much but is very very important no it's interesting especially um yeah as you say you, you think about things in, in different ways it's not just healthcare um, i suppose yeah. the the millennial fund is just avocado exporters and apple <laughs> we don't currently have a millennials fund and it you know some people say it's quite difficult to define what millennials actually are and it's a very broad array of people isn't it it's you know people born in from the the early 80s to the mid 90s you know there's a huge there's people at the upper end of that who are having children and are settling down and then there's people who are just entering the workforce so i think um that is an exposure that we have looked at creating but we don't currently have because we think it's it's quite difficult to to do it in a more in a in a way that that works being aligned to that name so we have in in its place we have something like we have we have a fund like a digitalization fund which is more about how the whole world is being digitalized and you can um you can look at multiple different industries and say and and have examples of companies that are going into them and digitalizing them so you know you have the high profile names like amazon and ebay which you just which are you know probably the most famous e-commerce firms out there. And what they've done is they've gone in and digitalized a previously analog industry. Yeah. Um, and But you can also have the companies that are related to them. You know, every time you're making a transaction online and not going into shop and handing over cash, you are um, giving money to the payment processing company. So you have um, firms like Visa and MasterCard and firms globally that are doing this. So you have you can have a Brazilian payment processing company, for example, in there. Um because it's about capturing the value chain for a theme like this rather than just the high-profile names. I think that's the, an important point that I would want to get across is that you want a broad exposure to a theme on a global basis because a lot of the growth is coming out of different areas, you know, out of not just um, Europe and the US. So you need to capture emerging market companies and across multiple industries. 
No, absolutely. Great. That's fascinating. Thank you very much for that. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we did do a piece on thematic investing and actually how it can help diversification within your portfolio. Because uh, as you were saying, Rob, you know, these, these themes, they don't run to market cycles. They, uh, they, they run entirely on them, themselves. So I suppose including to one can kind of reduce the risk in a portfolio as well, can't it? Well, I mean, it, it can improve the diversification of portfolios for sure. I mean, we see... Um, we see that being a key or something that our clients like about the thematic exposures that we have is that it reduces that home country bias that many of our portfolios have. So, you know, we, we, uh, many of us are guilty of having a real focus on the UK and Europe for our, uh, for our investments. And what these funds do um, by being global is give you exposure to areas of the market that you wouldn't necessarily normally have within your portfolio. So we have a healthcare innovation um, ETF, for example, which um, is all about giving investors exposure to companies in the healthcare space that are developing new technologies. And one of the key areas that that accesses is Asian healthcare. So we have a large overweight to South Korea and Taiwan in that index because we see a lot of the innovation coming out of those areas i should just say that there's this is all rules-based index investments um so there's no human element in picking in deciding that we want to overweight these countries but there are more companies in south korea and taiwan creating uh, new technologies in healthcare than there are in other places on balance and i just think that many of our portfolios lack exposure to those kind of areas so you can as you say improve the diversification by doing that okay that brings us to an end of this week's show thank you very much for listening but please do uh, head to the website and uh, read the magazine there's a, a feature from emma on how to pick a fund without looking at performance which i'm sure is uh, mind-boggling but uh, it's a great explanation of how to do that there's also a column on what IPOs in the investment trust space tell us about markets uh, based on the, the recent spate of IPOs that we've seen. Also, uh, based on thematic investing, um, there's a healthcare feature for next week's magazine, so please go and take a look at that. But apart from that, have a good weekend and thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 